Isaiah chapter 53, starting at verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he'll bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Second reading is from Romans 5, verses 6 to 21. It'd be great to follow along. It's on page 798. It's quite a complex passage to read, um, as I discovered, so it'd be great to follow along. Romans 5, chapter 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having having been reconciled, shall we we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking command, as Adam did, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for the many died by the trespass of one man. How much more did God did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as the disobedience of the one man Sorry, for just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the, the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Again, welcome. Uh, I'd encourage you to have open uh, that reading that Dave just brought to us. Not least, there is complex logic and uh, it pays to kind of re-look over it. Uh, If you've just joined us for today and for a special event or just happen to be joining us today and there was a special event on, uh, welcome. We've been looking at the cross leading up to Christmas, as Scott had said, uh, one of the great preparations for understanding why Jesus became one of us is understanding the end point, uh, the cross itself, the best preparation for Christmas is that. Uh, But more than that, uh, if we want to truly know God, we only know it as he's revealed himself at the cross most clearly. Uh, And the great joy of the cross is if you capture it perfectly, it transforms your life. Uh, And so in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we hope to continue to be transformed as we understand God clearly and properly as he's seen at the cross. Uh, How about I pray for us that God might speak clearly. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in so many ways. We thank you for the way which uh, you bless us with life and new life. Uh, Father, thanks today that we celebrate uh, the new life of birth, but also we celebrate new life by being born into the kingdom of God. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work now, that we would see clearly uh, Christ in all his splendour and glory and shame, and that by your spirit you would transform us to be different people because of what we know of him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Even with all the, the, the scandals and the hypocrisy and the cover-ups, there is a, a certain lingering respectability in our society about Christians and Christianity. Perhaps it's a reassuring comfort. Uh, just recently, uh, the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, said that the problem with German culture was not too much Islam but too little Christianity. Even avowed atheists can see there is a a respectable value of the Christian message. Uh, Roy Hattersley is a British MP, a confirmed atheist. Uh, Earlier this year, he wrote in um, admiration of the Salvation Army, and he said, I've never heard of atheist organisations taking food to the poor. You don't hear of atheist aid, rather like Christian aid. Matthew Paris, uh, another uh, journalists uh, and politician wrote an article entitled As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. Uh, as someone he himself had grown up in and out of Africa, he observed, uh, Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. 
This is from an outside observer looking at the value of Christianity, the respectability. So despite all the scandals and despite the hypocrisy, there is something still comfortable about Christianity in our culture. You know, for good reasons. But there is a danger in the comfort that people have with the gospel and the message of Jesus. The danger is we might forget that at the heart and soul of Christianity is scandal. Most of us here, I suspect, are comfortable with the the cross of Christ. Uh, Some, we've been Christians for so long that, you know, talking about that has just become part of the furniture of life. Uh, For others here today, you know, be outsiders looking in on faith, but but like those uh, guys, Hattersley and Paris, content that, yeah, sure, Christians might believe some pretty strange things, but they do some nice stuff too. You know, there's a comfort about Christians. But actually, scandal, not comfort, is the core of Christianity. And it is the scandal that makes that kind of respectable love and service of others. And we must see clearly the scandal if we're going to get the transforming benefits of the cross. See, are you comfortable with the cross? And perhaps as we look at it this morning, you'll realise why it's scandalous and not particularly comfortable. Because at the cross, the feature we want to focus on today is at the cross, the innocent takes the punishment that the guilty might walk away free. And if you have any sense of propriety and justice, you realise that sounds just completely scandalous. That God himself would stand in our place that the guilty might walk free. Two things I suppose I want us to grasp on. First is the, the reality, the tragedy that we are guilty. And secondly, the wonder that God takes our place. Our reading from Romans 5, yes, it was hard to follow at points, uh, but it does describe in verse 6 where we started the perfect timing of the cross, not with calendar events, not saying, yes, 33 uh, AD when Jesus died. That was a spectacular time to... No, no, no. Uh, It's at the right time because of our condition. Verse 6, just the right time. It is perfectly time to meet our guilty condition. Uh, in that passage, our condition is, is, is explained in a few ways, building on top of each other. So in 5.6, we're powerless. You know, our problem is such that no matter how much extra effort we put in or better training skills and going on courses for management uh, or improved education, pulling ourselves up by the boots, none of that will work. We are powerless in our condition. Uh, in the same verse, we're told we are ungodly. You know, the, the problem is not just a moral one, it's not just a psychological issue. It's a spiritual one. Our problem is we've rejected God from his rightful place in our lives. Our godlessness means that we don't love our maker with our heart, soul, mind and strength, or at least with all of it. The inference of verse 7 is that we're not good. That's not saying that by our lack of goodness, it's not saying we're all as evil as we possibly could be, but that every part of us is just tainted. There is no pure goodness in us. You know, my acts of generosity, I do, but as we've been looking in, in my connect group, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenging us to, to actually do good deeds just for the sake of our Father in heaven observing and for no one else congratulating. I, you know, I look at that and I kind of go, yeah, I do good deeds, but gosh, I wouldn't mind if someone noticed. Uh, Philip Roth, uh, the author, makes the metaphor for evil as the human stain He says it's in everyone, indwelling, inherent, defining, the stain that is there before the mark. That is, even before we act wrongly, there's a stained motive underneath. 
And so in 5 verse 8, we're called sinners. Again, that, that, that heart of sin is, is not action but attitude. It's that desire to dismiss God, to take his place. It's not about the, the habit of breaking a law, but it's the desire to make a law ourselves. And so in verse 9, we are told of our states as enemies and under God's wrath. You know, they, they are relational, personal words, wrath and enemy. You know, our state before God is not that we've just broken a couple of arbitrary laws, but we have personally affronted him. You know, we've taken his good gifts and scorned the generosity. You know, that's the scandal of us and our guilt, the tragedy of our guilt. Um, it's as Romans 5 goes on to say, we're, we're all in Adam in that way. We share in the guilt of the original rebel. You know, this guilt is your tragedy and mine. I want to say it might be difficult. It's, kind of, you know, it's a sunny day. We've celebrated a child uh, in Benjamin and it can be hard to hear that. Hard to hear it this morning. It's hard to hear any time to say that God is naturally against us. But I love the refreshing honesty of the Bible. Isn't it better to know the truth? Because without admitting the reality, there is no future and no hope. You know, because the guilt of our past is always a part of who we are in the present. You know, and we, we can't pretend it's just not there. We do ourselves a disservice if we pretended God's wrath wasn't against us by nature for what we've done to take his place. And there'll be no healing and there'll be no future as long as we pretend that's not the truth. Uh, an employer had to uh, confront an employee over what was a, a systematic long-term theft from the company. Uh, this employee had, over the years, been running multiple books and had taken um, for themselves a six-figure bonus, just unannounced, just bit by bit over time. And it wasn't really the money that was the bigger issue. It was the broken trust, it was the personal affront. You know, for two decades, over two decades, this person had been an employee of what was a small firm, less than a dozen people worked there. Christmas parties together year after year, seeing each other daily, and, and when confronted, the employee was offered an easy way out. But they stonewalled. Uh, and they denied everything. Even as the evidence was piled up against them, uh, and they counted it with demands of, you know, no, no, you actually need to compensate me for, for unfair dismissal. And you know, it just got harder and harder from that point. Because there's no future in denying the reality of guilt. We are like that employee before God. Yeah, and guilt isn't just done away with by us saying, oh, I take it all back. You know, in the heat of the moment, we've all said those words we regret and then afterwards you go, oh, you know, I take it back. And of course, you know, you, you can't take it back. Once the words are out there, they're public, they've been said. You can't pretend they weren't. You can't just wipe them away. You know, the wounds are real. You know, guilt can only ever be dealt with when it's recognised and condemned. You know, and the stain we carry before God as powerless ungodly, sinful enemies leaves us guilty. And when we get that, we can start to grasp the wonderful scandal of the cross. You know, the scandal is, yes, we're clearly guilty, but, but the innocent takes our place. God himself steps in. Have a look again at 5 verse 6 of Romans. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. You know, we are guilty, but God takes the penalty on himself. We looked last week at what the cross did to God himself, however, it tore him apart. Uh, but why did he do it? Well, Christ dies not for his guilt, but for us. You know, he takes our place. He substitutes himself. That's what the Isaiah reading was making sense. Even hundreds of years before Jesus turned up, he, he had an insight into that. Uh, what did Isaiah say? He took our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's the scandal of the cross, that he steps in our place. The innocent bears the guilt and the guilty walk free. That was the earthly trial of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was handed over in the dead of the night, uh, trumped up charges. Um, In Mark 14, we read about how uh, people got together and made up lies to get him convicted, but unfortunately they couldn't even concoct a a, a coherent story. Um, Even their lies kind of went against each other. You know, the governing officials recognised this famously. Pilate washed his hands at the event. In Luke 23, he talks about how he, he finds no basis of charge against this man and yet, because of the crowd's baying, a convicted murderer and, murderer and rebel, a guy called Barabbas, who'd been involved in a, a revolution, a failed revolution, was released. Jesus went to Calvary in his place. You know, there is the scandal of the cross. The innocent dying for the guilty. You know, that Jesus died not just for the nice people. You know, as Romans 5 put it, um, it is rare to find someone who'll die for a righteous person, but you can find them. It does happen. Uh, Robert Cook was a a young skydiving instructor. Uh, He took a woman, Kimberly Deer, on her first skydive. Um, Seconds after the takeoff, the plane had engine problems. Uh, It was clear what was going to happen. He clipped his skydive harness to hers and demanded that she use his body as a mattress. Uh, He died on impact. Uh, She was interviewed not long after. She's still kind of recovering physically and emotionally. And she said this, there aren't many people who would put their life on the line for a stranger. Um, You might do it for people you love, but would you do it for someone you just met? Now, Robert Cook, I admire, you know, that is an amazing man. But as what Romans 5 says, you, you know, it does happen. You might possibly dare to die for a good person, even here for a stranger. But the scandal of the cross is God dies for his enemies. You know, who would do that? He sees our guilt more clearly than we ever could. You know, he knows that the righteous wrath we deserve and still he steps in and takes our place. As John Stott put it, the essence of sin is we humans substituting ourselves for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where God deserves to be, God puts himself where we deserve to be. Now, if you're comfortable with the cross, is it that you just haven't grasped the reality of your guilt? And could it be that you, you haven't understood the wrath God has towards us naturally? Or is it you haven't realised just how embarrassingly liberal God is in who he's willing to take the place of? There's no one beyond forgiveness. So if we grasp 
the scandal of the cross, it will transform us. Let me point to three ways it might transform us. First, it will transform our future. It will become certain for us. The cross makes clear that the future of those who receive Christ is that they will find eternal acceptance. Uh, 5 verse 9, Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? At the cross, God's anger is poured out entirely on himself. And so that first effect of the cross is actually on God. His wrath is satisfied. And, and if he died for us while we were his enemies, well, then there's going to be no worries in the future. Now that we stand right with him, we are justified before him. Equally clear, though, is that those who don't accept Christ, who aren't in him, will have to bear that wrath on their own eternally. See, our, our future is certain. And there is a great benefit in knowing security. There's great freedom that when you know your future is this, you're actually free to go and pursue it uh, with complete passion. Um, when you're uncertain, it leaves you in two minds. Uh, I often have people share with me prayer points about cutbacks at their workplace. And there's that fear when cutbacks happen. Uh, and I reckon whenever cutbacks loom, um, a couple of things happen in an office. Now, one is there's a flurry of activity because everyone wants to look like you know, they're valuable and you couldn't live without them in the company. At the same time, there's this flurry of job searching uh, just in case I'm the one who um, is asked to go. You know, uncertainty leaves you distracted. You can't be wholehearted and focused on it. You know, if you're offered a business venture with 100% guaranteed success, you can commit wholeheartedly to that because you don't have to have a backup plan. But if it's high risk, well, you just need to make, make sure you cover your options. You know, certainty gives you freedom to pursue it with passion. You know, we who know our future is in heaven can do what Jesus recommends. What does he recommend? He says, seek treasure in heaven, irrelevant of the cost here. You can pour out your energy and your time and your money into loving God and people, not because you're worried you'll miss out, but because you're certain it won't fail. Secondly, it's going to transform your identity if you get the scandal of the cross. You know, the scandalous cross, I don't know how you define yourself. You know, if you meet someone at a party, I don't know how you're high, I'm where you go from there. As you think about yourself in relation to I don't know how you define yourself. But the scandalous cross clearly stamps our identity as beloved sinners. You know, the cross points to every fault we have and uncovers guilt we didn't know was there, but at the same time says, and yet you are loved and accepted because of Christ. You know, if you've never labelled yourself this way before, try it. Why not try starting every day this week thanking God that you're a beloved sinner? And I suspect you'll find the massive relief of it. Because it's a relief from the culture of us having to keep a good impression with everyone, not least with God. Uh, a report came out just this week that uh, on school students and their anxiety, uh, apparently their greatest anxiety is body image. You know, as if that's brand new information. You know, the pressure to meet the flawless standards, uh, whether it's physical or social or moral, they drive our society. We want to keep a good impression up. You know, and it doesn't stop, does it, when we finish the HSC? It's not like, oh, well, what a shame those school students struggle with body image. <laughs> Thankfully, we don't, because uh, we've finished that and we've moved on. No, no, no. But the cross overturns it. 
You know, to identify yourself as a beloved sinner is, is just a relief from the push to be impressive. Uh, Martin Luther, he struggled with that. He agonised over his imperfections. He was aware that not every part of his, his heart and soul and mind loved God. And he said, I couldn't but imagine that I'd angered God, whom in turn I had to appease by doing good works. So he just worked harder and harder trying to do good. And that was before he grasped the scandal of the cross, that that, that burden was lifted off him. You know, a young man I, I ministered to in university uh, felt the same kind of weight. He's a lovely guy. He's always worried whether he could be saved. And his problem was he kept looking at himself to create his own identity before God and what he did and how good he was. And, you know, it was like he was a good taxpayer. He just hoped that he'd done enough and he could avoid trouble. But what relieved him was eventually he stopped defining himself by himself and he looked to the cross and saw he was a beloved sinner. You know, all the time Satan and this world are trying to distort that self-understanding. For some of us, we're tempted to drop the sin a bit and just think of ourselves as beloved. And we're comfortable with that and we end up proud. For others, our constant failure is on our mind and we're, we're tempted to drop the beloved and we just feel sinful. What we need to do is do what the hymn writer advises, a song we're going to sing shortly. We need to look to the cross. And when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and I see him there who makes an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Now there is the scandal of the cross that changes who we are. As someone puts it, the fact that Jesus had to die humbles our pride, but the fact that Jesus was glad to die assures us out of our fears. In Christ we are, you are, beloved sinners. Finally, if we get that scandal, it will transform our attitude. If you know that he took your place and punishment, your attitude to God will change. Uh, you know, God, godly old Christian man put it, when through the gospel the lost soul sees the Lord on the cross in his place for his sins, he's overpowered with emotion and spiritual gratitude. How can one continue to sin in the face of such dying love? Most people who don't understand the cross try and minimise the times they have to engage with God. You know, so they'll, they'll go to church events when the family requires it. They'll, they'll pray when it's desperate. Um, they'll let their Bible collect dust and they'll have conversations with him as brief as possible until they can get out of it. But once you grasp the cross, that your whole guilty self was set free, then you get gripped by this scandalous God. Uh, as Romans 5.11 puts it, we rejoice in God through Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. But as well, it changes our attitude to other people, doesn't it? It's, it's why Africa needs Christian people, because we can love liberally. You know, as, as someone who's received a pardon, I can go and excuse other people. I can bear the cost of forgiving them. You know, once I'm united to Christ, I can start with his presence and life in me, and I can act like him. When someone wrongs me, I don't have to punish them. I can forgive. You know, I can forgive that person who cuts me in traffic, that, that friend who gossiped, the family member who crushed me. As Romans 5.20 put it, where sin increases, grace abounds. When you get the scandal of the cross, you realise there is no unforgivable person, not you nor any other. Let me ask you again, are you comfortable with the cross? I hope it brings you comfort. 
But may we never forget the scandal at the core of Christianity. That the innocent dies, that the guilty might walk free. That God might take our place. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you that when we look at the cross, we see both our guilt condemned, but our freedom guaranteed. We thank you that you love so indiscriminately that you would bear our guilt. And we ask that you would transform us. Help us to see clearly that scandal, that we might live differently because of it. Where our sin increases, may your grace abound. In Jesus' name, amen.